this evening we come to the second plague that God sent upon the people of Egypt because they would not let his people go. And what a plague this second plague was. Um, During most of my teenage years, I lived in Panama City, Florida. And one of the many claims to fame of Panama City, Florida, is that it was where the 1972 movie Frogs was filmed. Are you familiar with the movie Frogs? Um, It's a B movie. Okay, it's a it's a cheaply made movie. Uh, the story was about a, a wealthy, grumpy man who lived on his island mansion on a river. This man hated the animals that would come onto his property, and so he began to poison them. And the plot of the movie is that in rebellion, the animals of the river, and especially the frogs, struck back. Now, it's, it's supposed to be a scary movie, but it's frogs. So it's actually pretty silly. Um, at the end of the movie, you have this grumpy man sitting in his house in his wheelchair, and he's all alone in the house, and it's dark outside, and you can begin to hear the frogs croaking, ribbits, ribbits. And then suddenly you begin to see that there are frogs in the house, they're, they're in all the corners of the room, and, and there's lots of croaking, and the man is looking around the house in, in fear. Now the frogs are on his bookshelves. How they got there, we don't know, and the man is even more afraid. Uh, it shows the frogs, and then it shows the man's frightened face, and then it shows the frogs, and then it shows the man's frightened face, and, and of course the music is getting a little more intense, and we see more frogs, and now the man is, is looking terrified, and finally, for some inexplicable reason, the man tries to get out of his wheelchair and falls to the floor, and of course the frogs begin to hop on the man. Then it shows the outside of the house, and the last light in the house goes out. And the frogs have had their revenge. I'm not sure how they hopped on him. Um, Is that how they got their revenge, I guess? But if you enjoy watching B-movies with friends and making fun of them, I highly recommend the movie Frogs. Now, despite how cheesy that movie is, in real life, frogs can cause a lot of problems. For example, in 2004, Mayor Harry Kim of Hawaii's largest island declared a state of emergency because of the severity of the frog infestation on that island. A species of rain frog from Puerto Rico had invaded the island and had begun to multiply rapidly. You see, the frogs had no natural predators on that island, and scientists say that as many as 8,000 of that particular species of frogs can populate one acre of land at the same time. So if you can imagine 8,000 frogs on one acre of land. What's more, these particular frogs that were um, on this island of Hawaii, they don't croak so much as they shriek. They have a very high-pitched call, and the noise of these thousands upon thousands of shrieking frogs was driving residents of Hawaii crazy. In the end, it took $5 million and lots of citric acid and hydrate lemon 
to begin to control the population. So frog infestations are real. They have happened in the past. But tonight we read of what was surely the most astounding frog infestation to happen in the history of the world. It took place 3,500 years ago among the people of Egypt. And this was no mere natural occurrence. Uh, This was the judgment of God. And so though it is a strange account, it does have a great deal to teach us about our God. So let's, let's read it. Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Exodus 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall only be left in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the first plague that we saw this morning of the Nile being turned to blood, water in Egypt being turned to blood, that plague has ended, okay? Uh, The surface water of Egypt was blood for seven days, but now things have returned to normal, and now with a new week comes a new plague. Using the same staff of God that was used to strike the waters of the Nile, Aaron, under Moses' authority, calls forth frogs upon the land. And so let's begin with some general observations about this plague. First, this plague included many, many frogs. Many, many frogs. Uh, Verse 3 says, The Nile shall swarm with frogs. And that word swarm is the same word used in Exodus 1 to describe the rapid multiplication of the Jews in Egypt. 
Just as Israel grew rapidly in number and began to overflow the boundaries of their allotted land, so God was now calling forth a multitude of frogs who would then swarm the land of Egypt. We're told that they are in the houses, in the bedrooms, in the beds where people sleep. They were in the ovens of their kitchens. They were in the bread bowls. Verse 6 says the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. It's the same word that we'll later see used when the Egyptian army is drowned by the Red Sea. Just as the waters covered up the military of Egypt and drowned them, so these frogs are now covering up the land of Egypt. We're not told how long this took, but ancient Jewish documents say that this plague, like the first, probably lasted one week. Second observation is that every class of person in Egypt was affected. Every class of person in Egypt was affected. It didn't just affect the lower class or the upper class. Verse 4 makes clear everyone was affected. God told Pharaoh through Moses, The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And so even Pharaoh and his court would be affected by this plague. The Egyptian people would be affected. The slaves and the servants of the Egyptian people would be affected. Uh, Unlike some later plagues that we're going to see, these first plagues are indiscriminate. They're affecting everyone in Egypt. Third observation. The magicians were able to imitate this plague, but not reverse it. They were able to imitate this plague, but not reverse it. So this is similar to what we saw this morning with the first plague. What Pharaoh really needs is for the frogs to be taken away, not for there to be more of them, right? But the magicians who serve the Egyptian gods, they are not able to make them go away. Rather, they can only use their dark religion to call forth even more frogs, Um, This is the nature of dark and demonic power. Dark and demonic power does not heal. It only harms. God alone can heal. God alone can stay his own hand. God alone can heal where he has wounded. Fourth observation. Pharaoh agreed to let God's people go if he will just remove the frogs. Pharaoh agreed to let God's people go if he will remove the frogs. And so we see this change in Pharaoh as the plague unfolds. Yes, the magicians are able to imitate this plague as before, but that isn't making the frogs go away. And apparently, his trusted wise men, his religious priests, his magicians, they don't have an answer for him. And so for the first time, Pharaoh seems to really see the power of Yahweh. He calls for Moses to pray to his God, to Yahweh, for these frogs to go away. And he promises Moses that if if his God will, will take these frogs away, then he will let the Israelites go and serve their God in the wilderness. Under the judgment of God, Pharaoh's heart has been bent into submission. And so Moses asked Pharaoh to name the day. Name it, Pharaoh. When do you want me to pray? Because he wanted it to be obvious that the death of the frogs was the work of Yahweh. And so Pharaoh, ready for this plague to end, doesn't say a week from now or a month from now. He says, tomorrow. And Moses cries out to the Lord at that time. 
And he has put the reputation of God on the line. It's important for God's glory and the people of Israel that God come through. And so Moses cries out to the Lord, and the Lord answers. And at the appointed time, the frogs croak. (laughs) They die. The frogs die. Fifth, the cleanup in Egypt was massive. The cleanup in Egypt was massive. Verse 14 says, and they gathered them together in heaps. What you can't see in the English is that this word heaps is actually repeated in the Hebrew. The verse literally says, and they gathered them together in heap heaps. Heap heaps. Remember, ancient times, they didn't have exclamation points. They didn't use italics. When they wanted to emphasize something, they couldn't underline it. They would repeat the word, right? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, meaning this is absolutely true. You can count on it. Genesis 14, Moses tells us about men who fell into a pit, but it wasn't just a regular pit. It's a really, really deep pit. And so in the Hebrew, Moses calls it a pit pit. As R.C. Sproul says, there are pits and then there are pits. Some pits are pittier than other pits. And these pits, the pit pits, were the piteous pits of all. It's one thing to fall into a pit, but if you fall into a pit pit, you're in deep trouble. Well, our text speaks not of a pit pit, but of a heap heap. The point is, the carcasses of these frogs became large mounds that could probably be seen for quite a distance away. As you can imagine, verse 14 says, this calls the whole land to stink. So earlier, the Israelites were telling Moses that he had caused them to stink before Pharaoh. Now it's Egypt itself that stinks. This morning, the Nile, the water was stinking. Tonight, it's the land that's stinking and you can just imagine how horrid that smell would have been sixth observation once the plague had ended pharaoh hardened his heart as god had promised this is what god had told moses would happen sure enough in verse 15 we find pharaoh returning to his old self it is amazing how under moments of extreme trial People can turn, out, turn to God and cry out for his mercy. And then as soon as the trial ends, they go back to their life of sin and rebellion. Is that anyone in here? Does that describe you? Are you someone who cries out to God only in moments of trouble, only in moments when you feel like there's nowhere else for me to turn? And then once that trouble is removed you go back to your own way of living the true believer rests on christ and rests on god every day the true believer seeks fellowship with god not only in the valleys but also on the plains and in the mountaintops god is not some great power in the sky who exists only to help you in your time of need no you exist for him Your life is intended to bring glory to him, either as a vessel of his mercy or a vessel of his judgment. Pharaoh continued to harden his heart, and God showed his mighty wrath in judgments against Pharaoh. 
But had Pharaoh only repented and humbled himself, he could have known the mercy of God. And any of us in here can know the mercy of God if we will humble ourselves and turn to him with genuine sincerity of heart. Not just to get us through a momentary trial, but to give us ultimate salvation and peace and joy. Now we've seen that each of these plagues is an assault on a different God of the Egyptians. Right? God is demonstrating that it is he and not these Egyptian deities who has true power. Deuteronomy 32 teaches that these deities are not gods at all. They are demonic powers. And in this plague, the Egyptian god being attacked is actually a goddess. And her name is Hecate. Hecate. Now you may think it's strange that God would choose to plague the people of Egypt with frogs. You might think of all the creatures in the Nile. Why frogs? But you have to understand that Hecate was one of the most important goddess, gods, she was a goddess, in the Egyptian religion. She was the goddess of fertility. She was the deity who was said to actually give life. The Egyptians believed that Hecate was the wife of the god Knum. And Knum would use his potter's wheel to form the bodies of men. But it was Hecate who actually breathed into that formed person the breath of life. When pregnant women went into labor, they would wear amulets with Hecate's image on them to protect their newborn life. The Egyptian midwives were known as the servants of Hecate. To the Egyptians, frogs were a picture of fertility. We here in America sometimes talk about something multiplying like rabbits, right? Because rabbits multiply so quickly. Well, in Egypt, they would have used the phrase multiplying like frogs because they can do the same. In fact, millions of frogs are born along the banks of the Nile every year, just before the annual flood. And therefore, when the Egyptians depicted this goddess Hecate, she was often depicted with a woman's body, but with the head of a frog. Uh, She was worshipped throughout Egypt through frog statuettes. This is why God chose this plague for Egypt. It's a direct assault on one of their most important deities, one of the gods in whom they placed much of their trust. God is removing their idols one by one, just as I pray that he's doing in our lives as we grow in Christ, taking away our false gods one by one. Hecate was thought not only to control human reproduction, but the fertility of the other creatures in Egypt. In particular, she was said to control the frog population by controlling the crocodiles of the Nile that feasted on them. And yet now, through this plague, God shows that Hecate is powerless to thwart his will. Pharaoh's priests were certainly bowing down, praying to Hecate, making their sacrifices, make these frogs go away. And they were not disappearing. It is only when Moses prays to his God, the true God of life, that the frogs disappear. And so you see the point. Mount Hermon, on who do we depend for life? Who has the power 
to open and close the womb. When it comes to matters of pregnancy and safe deliveries and healthy children, we must pray to our God. He is the one who caused even a virgin to give birth. He is the one who opened the womb of barren Sarah and barren Hannah. And when he closes the womb, it's always with good purpose. Yes, we can look to medicine and doctors and medical authorities, but at the end of the day, it is God who controls these things, and we must cry out to Him in all matters of reproduction. Who keeps the animals and the bugs at bay? We think we're so powerful, but let the number of bugs or the number of snakes or the number of amphibians increase, and we suddenly find ourselves in a whole lot of trouble. Have you ever had an infestation in your home? Seeing one mouse is enough for me in my home. How about you? I'll never forget the story of the family who found out that there were hundreds of snakes living inside the walls of their house. And they eventually had to burn the house to the ground. It's a frightening thing. I didn't put it in the sermon. I probably shouldn't take time to tell it now, but ask me sometime later about the first house that my family moved into in Panama City, Florida. It was an infested house and it was scary. I woke up one night with a Florida scorpion crawling up my belly. Um, so all that to say, who's in charge of these things? Who's in control of them? Can you imagine how different our lives would be if God did not hold all things in balance? Yes, we can look to human means and human technologies. We can spend $5 million in Hawaii to kill frogs We can call the local pest control company to rid our house of pests. But let us remember how frail and how fragile the natural balance of this earth is. Let us offer up regularly praise to God that he cares for us and keeps things the way they ought to be for our welfare. He is merciful in that. I bet that's a mercy you haven't thought of lately. Now we are coming to next week, the plague of mosquitoes. We'll have to keep that one in mind in the coming weeks as the weather warms. Now we come to the prophetic lesson, the prophetic lesson of this plague. Uh, We've already seen that the book of Revelation, the very end of our Bibles, draws from these plagues here in the second book of the Bible to help us understand what we should expect from God in these last days. Just as these plagues that we're studying now were smaller judgments that increased with each one, all leading to a great final judgment, so we're told in Revelation that we are living in a day of plagues on earth, all warning us of a greater judgment day to come. Well, in Revelation 16, the very same chapter where this morning we saw John speaking of water being turned to blood, he goes on to say this, verses 12 through 14, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty." It's important to realize that frogs were considered unclean creatures to the Jews. And here John says that these frogs have been sent out into the world. 
they are unclean spirits. That phrase is used around 20 times in the New Testament to speak of fallen angels, to speak of, of demons. And so in the book of Revelation, these, these frogs are said to represent demons. And, and what are they doing? Well, like the frogs that multiply in great number, these spirits are leading the people of this world into sexual immorality, fornication, and all sorts of fleshly, sensual sin. More than that, John says they are deceiving the kings of the earth. Remember, Moses told Pharaoh that he and his house would be affected by the frogs. And Psalm 105.30 speaks about how there were frogs even in the chambers of the Pharaoh. The highest men in Egypt, those above all others, could not escape the frogs in their bedrooms. Well, John says in Revelation that these demonic forces have gone out into the world and that they are particularly affecting those in high positions. Probably using sensual sins, they are hardening the hearts of those leaders and deceiving them into coming together to destroy God's people. Uh, Revelation does seem to indicate a uniting of the powers of the earth as time unfolds, particularly a uniting of earthly kingdoms against Christianity. And this at the instigation of unclean spirits, using sensual sins to harden the hearts of world leaders. Church, when we think about the kingdoms of this world, when you read the headlines on CNN, we are not to look at the news the way unbelievers look at it. We know that there are spiritual forces at work. We know that there is a spiritual warfare going on. And if we don't interpret the headlines that way, we're missing a large part of what God himself has revealed to us is unfolding in history. All of these powers are being deceived, for at the time that they are most united to destroy God's people, the Lord Jesus will descend from heaven, and it will be those powers that will be destroyed. So according to Revelation, the prophetic lesson of the frogs is that in these last days, unclean spirits will come upon the rulers of this world and will lead them to destruction. We've been warned ahead of time. And so let us not be surprised as these things come to be. Well, now let us note a second purpose of these plagues, a second purpose, a second reason why God is bringing these ten plagues about. And here is our second purpose, to show that there is only one true God. Only one true God. Here is one great lesson of these plagues. It is the lesson of monotheism. There is only one God. Church, we have to remember, monotheism was unknown in the ancient world. Everyone worshipped multiple gods in the ancient world. There were different gods for almost everything in nature. And there were national gods, and there were tribal gods, and there were gods of various guilds. The idea of there being just one God was preposterous to the ancient mind. So what is God teaching as he releases plague after plague? Perhaps after the first plague, someone might have said, Oh, now I see. Happy isn't the God of the Nile. Yahweh is. I get it now. But then that person would have simply replaced happy with Yahweh and set Yahweh right alongside all the other gods. But God isn't just the God of the Nile. He's also the God of life and fertility. 
And with the next eight plagues, he's going to show that he's the God of a whole lot more than that. With every plague, God will be revealing that it is he, one God, who is sovereign over all things. And God wasn't just teaching this to the Egyptians. He was teaching it to his own people, Israel, who have been enslaved in Egypt for centuries. Think about God's people having been living in this pagan culture for centuries. Likely, they have been influenced into worshiping other gods. And so God is teaching not just the Egyptians, but also the Israelites that he is the one God, that the Egyptian gods are a farce. And soon God is going to bring his people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai and what is going to be the very first commandment that God gives to his people. You shall have no other gods before me. Idolatry will be strictly forbidden. Worshiping other gods will be strictly forbidden. Here is what made God's people different from every other people in the world. Here is what made the nation of Israel in ancient times different from every other ancient nation. They worshiped one God, the true God, and Him alone. Mount Hermon, even in our modern, sophisticated, technologically advanced times, monotheism is still less popular than polytheism. Our secular culture isn't against us because we believe in God. It's because we believe that our God is the only God. We don't get in trouble when we talk about Jesus. We get in trouble when we say that Jesus is God alone and that other religions are wrong. If we were polytheists, if we could say, well, Christianity works for me, but Muslim Islam can work for you, and Hinduism can work for you, and atheism can work for you, and if we would be willing to accept these other views, the culture would be fine with us. But it's because we're monotheists. It's because we believe that there is one Lord, and that he is the only Lord of all, that our culture is now turning against us. These plagues won't let us say what the rest of the world wants us to say. We can't say religion is a buffet. It's all equally good. Take what you want. Leave what you don't. We have to say Jehovah, Yahweh, Jesus. He is God alone and he is God over all. This is what people hate. If God is God over all, the only God, then that means what he says goes. And every person must bow to his will. People cannot stand being told to bow to a will that goes against their own. Um, Gore Vidal, a very famous homosexual activist who lectured at Harvard and died in 2012, said this. He said, The great unmentionable evil at the center of our culture is monotheism. From a barbaric Bronze Age text known as the Old Testament, three anti-human religions have evolved. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And these are sky god religions. Why does he call them sky god religions? He calls them sky god religions because the god of Judaism, the god of Christianity, the god of Islam, they all claim to be the one sovereign only true god. 
These religions do not claim that there is God, that there is one God among many. They claim that their God is the only God, and that if there is only one God, all people must answer to their God. And so listen to what Vidal said about Christianity. He said, although many of the Christian evangelists feel it necessary to convert everyone on earth to their primitive religion, they have been prevented so far from forcing others to worship as they do. But they have forced most tyrannically and wickedly their superstitions and their hatred upon all of us through the civil law and through general prohibitions. So it is upon that account that I now favor an all-out war on the monotheists. At the end of the day, what Vidal loved was his own will. He was a homosexual. He liked the choices that he was making, and he didn't like being told that there was one supreme God to whom he must conform and before whom he must bow. And as I mentioned earlier, these were things he was saying in lectures at Harvard University. These are things being said at the core of the elites of our culture. Vidal was not alone. All human beings by nature would rather live in a pluralistic, polytheistic world where they can find the God that fits, them, fits best their preferences, fits best their own personal morals, fits best their own way of thinking. Human beings by nature love themselves more than anything else. We love to be our own gods, and we are happy as long as we can craft a God that fits with us, that fits our image. Rather than us being made in God's image, we want to make a God in our image. What the natural heart cannot stand is a God who does not exist for us. We cannot stand a God who is sovereign over us, sitting on a throne, demanding that our will be bent to his. And yet that, dear friends, is the God who truly exists. This is the God before whom Pharaoh is going to be made to bow. Make no mistake, this God is good. This God is wise. This God is just. The problem here is not with the one true God. The problem is with our blind, stubborn, idolatrous hearts. Uh, We're so stinking foolish. If we would just learn to humble ourselves and submit to God, we would find that His ways really do lead to blessing and to peace and to our eternal happiness. Uh, Friends, we are not hurting God by rebelling against Him. We are only hurting ourselves. And so here is the call that goes out this evening. It comes from Isaiah 55, 7. I preach it to you with all my heart, hoping that every one of us in this room will heed it. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him to our God, for he will abundantly pardon The one true God is a compassionate God. He is a pardoning, merciful, gracious God. And so don't be like Pharaoh. Don't harden your heart against him. But trust him and follow him. Let's pray.